I would like to introduce our two esteemed guests, Mr. George Akerloff and Mr. Robert Schiller. George A. Akerloff is the Daniel E. Koshland Senior Distinguished Professor of Economics at UC Berkeley. He was educated at Yale and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where he received his PhD in 1966, the same year he became an assistant professor at Berkeley. He became a full professor in 1978. Professor Akerlof is a 2001 recipient of the Alfred E. Nobel Prize in Economic Science. He was honored for his theory of asymmetric information and its effect on economic behavior. He is also the 2006 President of the American Economic Association. He served earlier as Vice President and member of the Executive Committee. He is also on the North American Council of the Econometric Association. Mr. Robert J. Schiller is the Arthur M. Oaken Professor of, I hope I said that right, I probably didn't, <laughs> Professor of Economics at the Department of Economics and Cowles Foundation for Research and Economics at Yale University, and Professor of Finance and a Fellow at the International Center for Finance at Yale School of Management. He received his BA from the University of Michigan in 1967 and his PhD in Economics from MIT in 1972. He has written on financial markets, financial innovation, behavioral economics, macroeconomics, real estate statistical methods, and on public attitudes, opinions, and moral judgments regarding markets. He served as vice president of the American Economic Association in 2005 and president of the Eastern Economic Association in 2006. He writes a column, Finance in the 21st Century, for Project Syndicate, which publishes around the world, and an economic view column in the Sunday New York Times. Both gentlemen are the author of the recently published Animal Spirits. Please join me in welcoming Mr. Akerloff and Mr. Schiller. Okay, so l let me begin, actually, let me begin with um, a bit of a prop. Uh, so Bob and I, we've written a book, and it's called Animal Spirits. And uh, the reason I bring the, I have the book here to show you what it looks like is that um, on the cover, on the jacket, there's this nice cartoon. And it's a cartoon by Ed Corrin who is the cartoonist in The New Yorker, who makes all of these fuzzy animals. And uh, here, all, I, you probably can't see this, but they're all these fuzzy animals. And they have these expressions on their faces. And uh, this is when the stock market's up, and uh, he or she has this wonderful smile. And then the stock market's going down, and you probably can't see the expression, but the person's really, really upset, and it's as if they're going down a sliding board. And then he comes to the bottom, and he's scared stiff, and he's hanging on. Then it goes up, and there he is with his hands out, and so forth. So that's the, the thing is, the reason I did that is that I think this is the spirit of the book. So um, the book is uh, very serious. It is about a very serious topic, but it isn't solemn. And the way we, what we do in this book is we tell a lot of stories. And so what we do, which is very much different from the way the standard macroeconomics is written, is we tell a lot of stories. And actually, Bob is especially a good storyteller. So there are lots of Bob's good stories. Um, so, uh, and they're all over the book. And so what we're trying to do is tell these stories which are indicative about how the economy works and in 
particular, one of the things that it is indicative is how we got into the current financial crisis that we're currently into. So I think I'm going to give you a, little, a few sort of formal remarks. They're going to be a little bit more solemn than the tone of the book. But um, I, there's a reason that they're a little bit more solemn than, my, than the tone of the book. And actually, my usual way of thinking about the world is because in a short, very short space of time, I wanted to give you a view of how we got into the current economic and financial crisis. So governments the world over are working to solve this crisis. And they're enlisting economists to guide them through it. Now, economists rely on their vision of macroeconomics, and much of this vision comes from the uh, economist of the 1930s, John Maynard Keynes. Now, getting it right then calls for a correct vision of how the economy works. And the role of this book, the role of this animal spirits book, is to provide such a vision. Current versions of macroeconomics greatly play down the role of psychology in the macroeconomy. But as we show in the book, there are at least eight fundamental macroeconomic questions whose answers depend largely, although not entirely, on the role of psychology. So the first task of the book, the first task of this book is to explain the role of psychology in the macroeconomy and in answering these eight questions. Now Keynes called this role of psychology, he called it people's animal spirits. And what the first part of the book does is it describes five different animal spirits. What are they? They're confidence, fairness, corruption and bad faith, money illusion, and stories. And then what the second part of the book does is it describes how these animal spirits play a key role, how they play a key role in the answer to these eight macroeconomic questions. Now, these questions are really fundamental. They're as fundamental as why the economy fluctuates as much as it does, why and how monetary and fiscal policy affect the economy, and why there's involuntary unemployment. These are as fundamental to macroeconomics and, in fact, to economics as a whole as any questions you can find. So I'm going to review just briefly how these concepts indicate how we've gotten into the current crisis. The first of these, of these five uh, animal spirits, is confidence. Now think about it. The dictionary tells us that confidence means trust. Actually, what it says is confidence me means complete trust. But trust means that people go beyond the usual uh, rational use of, to make judgments, the usual rational use that's, that is in standard economics. And that's just what we found in the boom that just ended. The people had trust and, they were, and that they were making all kinds of business investments. They were making all kinds of investments. They were especially purchasing and selling complex financial instruments on the basis of their trust. Now, this was not just in the housing and mortgage market. It occurred in financial markets much more generally. Furthermore, they would have not have made these investments if they'd rationally analyzed the basis for making them. They made them because they were confident, and as it turns out, they were overconfident. So that's the first of our five concepts. It's uh, confidence. Let me now describe the role of corruption and bad faith. Very few economists foresaw the problems that were developing. 
Now, the standard view among economists was the private markets would be self-policing. Uh, it assumes that people would be knowledgeable buyers and knowledgeable sellers, so they would only undertake increased risk if they were duly compensated by higher expected returns. So there was little worry about the laxness of regulation of both the securities and the real estate markets. There was little worry on the part of the governments, there was little worry on the part of the regulators, and there was little worry on the part of the public. But it turns out that this self-policing view does not take appropriate account the people were overconfident. And therefore, they did not do the self-policing that they were supposed to do. So think about it. I want you to think about it. There is a principle of capitalism, which means that capitalism will take advantage of overconfidence. So the usual argument is that capital produces what people really want, as long as people can make a profit. But the truth is, the more general truth is a bit different and a little by a subtlety. Capitalism produces what people think they want as long as firms can make a profit. So think about the use of this. Unregulated capitalism may produce good medicines that cure our ills. I think it actually does. I think the medicines that you get for the most part from the pharmacy are actually very good and they do cure our ills. But unregulated capitalism also produces snake oil that, that does not cure our ills. May even find it profitable to produce the desire for the snake oil itself. And in fact, that's one of the major reasons for the Food and Drug Administration to guard against bad medicine. Just to give you one of the uh, stories in the book or the type of things that's in the book is we talk about two two generations of Rockefellers. William Rockefeller, who was the father of John D. Rockefeller, who founded uh, Standard Oil. Now, William Rockefeller, what did he do? He sold snake oil medicine. And what he did was he'd get a buggy, a horse and buggy, and he'd go around uh, from town to town in, in the United States uh, Midwest, and he'd pull into town and he'd say, William Rockefeller is here, Dr. Rockefeller and I have these medicines. And then he'd set himself up in a fine suite and he'd sell out these medicines. Well, his son did better. His son, for good, better or worse, founded Standard Oil, which, which actually does sell us something that we really want, whether, whether he, he was also one of the world's biggest monopolists. I, so you can judge it as you wish. So now think about this, this business about snake oil. This principle has special relevance for asset markets. Now think about what assets are to most people. Assets to most people are only pieces of paper. Now, most investors surmise the value of financial assets from what others, such as accountants and rating agencies, tell about them. The only way you can know about an asset usually is what somebody else tells you. Those accounting and rating agencies, and also your stockbroker, also have their own incentives. And those incentives are not fully aligned with the public's interest, and they're not necessarily full aligned with your interest. So when people are overconfident, financial markets tend to produce assets that take advantage of that overconfidence. If unprotected by effective regulation, people will be sold snake oil assets, and then an industry will arise to produce them. And that's just what we saw in Wall Street and beyond. Okay, so that's the second of the three um, uh, animal spirits I'm going to describe. There's a further animal spirit which bolsters the previous two. Now this is about how we live. Um, 
People act and think and living according to stories. Think about yourself and how you are in, in many different environments of your life. You have a story. You have a story about who you are and what you're doing. It, you not only have a story for for you have a story for your marriage, you have a story if you have children about how you relate to your children. Uh, most of the, your aspects of life you have a story about and it tells you who you are and how you place. Now, these stories, people tell themselves stories also about their economic decisions. So there's stories about economics as well as personal decisions and how we live. And so think about it. In any given time, there's usually a story. There's usually a pretty common story about how the economy is behaving as it does. Now, these stories have some grain of truth, but they often are over-exuberant on the one side or too pessimistic on the other. So think about it. Ten years ago, there was the dot-com story. In the recent past, there was a story that financial engineering had made financial assets much more safe than the underlying securities. The story that modern financial packaging had somehow figured out ways to uh, reduce risk. Somehow, there was a new alchemy out there, and you could buy all of these assets that were packaged somehow, and you didn't need to care about what had the risk. Somehow, Goldman Sachs or some other company had taken care of the risk problem for you. Well, people bought into the stories. They were overconfident, and markets took advantage of those beliefs to sell them, what later proved to be snake oil assets. So these three animal spirits then explain how fluctuations in human psychology play a key role in why the economy fluctuates as much as it does. We think that's the key role in business cycle fluctuations. The confidence comes and the confidence goes. The stories come and the stories go. The snake oil comes and the snake oil goes. So we think that the current financial crisis is explained exactly by such fluctuations, and that's one major thrust of the book. And indeed, that's our thrust of the book, which tells us what we think are the origins of the current financial crisis. Okay, so now I'm going to turn it over to Bob, who's going to tell you some more about the book and also tell you more about where we are in terms of the current financial crisis. Thank you very much. So I'll just give a few more remarks, and then we'll open for questions. So we are going through uh, the most serious economic crisis since the Great Depression. And the economics profession, for the most part, didn't see it coming at all. Moreover, economic theory seems to be kind of orthogonal and unrelated to recent events. Uh, and so the title of our book, Animal Spirits, is as George said, what's left out of economics. And we think that there needs to be more of a unity of social sciences, that economists really have to think about psychology. Now this may not be your distillation of what's happening, but we think that it's fundamentally psychology uh, broadly interpreted, social psychology and the, and the like, that, that get us into this problem. You may think, well, people are reacting. What, what's happening now? We're in a downward spiral in the economy. Why is that? You may think, well, people are re behaving rationally. If you don't have a job, you can't spend. 
And uh, if you're not spending, then somebody else uh, uh, doesn't have a job, and, and so on. That's definitely what's happening right now. That's the problem we're in. But behind it is something more fundamental about our confidence. And we believe that um, major drivers of this situation were the two bubbles that we had in the stock market and in the housing market. Stock market which peaked in the 19, well, the 1990s boom uh, and then uh, the peak in 2000 uh, and then the collapse after that. Uh, the market is down over 60% in real terms since 2000. And the, and the housing market as well uh, was, had a huge boom, as you know, until around 2006 and now is collapsed dramatically. Those events, we believe, are fundamentally psychological. And yet, economic theory has none of that. In fact, in the economic profession, over the last 30 years, we've developed a th core theory which is involved based around efficient markets and rational expectations. The profession has gotten very involved in the idea that people are rational and logical and reacting appropriately. Uh, the problem that economists then have is, well, what's driving all of this? <laughs> if, if we're all rational and if everything is, uh, everything is logical, why do we get into this mess? I think this is a, we think this is a fundamental conundrum and we need a revolution in economics. Uh, we'll not be able to understand how we get out of this crisis if we don't understand the basic drivers that got us into this crisis. What, what the, the, I think the problem is a uh, coordination problem. When you set up a university, you kind of have to have professors specialize in one thing or another. So you divide them up into departments and you have the psych department, the sociology department, the political science department, etc. But in trying to understand something like this, unfortunately all these different uh, departments have to have a role. But economists want to focus in on their thing, okay? So if you read a lot of what people say about the current crisis, they don't take the global view of all of the human elements that went into it. They tend to talk about, you know, one economist will say it's the toxic asset problem, that the banks have all of these bad loans on their balance sheets and they won't be able to lend again until we fix that. Uh, and some other economists will say, well, it's the pro-cyclical capital requirements that we have that, that make banks have to pull loans in in a, in a downtime. All of these economists have an element of truth, but I think they tend to focus in on, it makes it sound like the crisis is some narrow technical problem when it's actually driven by something much bigger and more important. Uh, so... Um, I think um, one thing that George said, it maybe takes a little bit more uh, explanation. We have a, a chapter on stories in the book. And one theme of our book is that it's uh, what psychologists call narrative-based thinking or story-based thinking that underlies a lot of what goes on in the economy. Uh, the uh, psychologists, Did Mike, okay, <laughs> back on. And Robert Abelson uh, 
wrote a number of papers that argue that the human brain tends to organize around stories, narratives, and we are especially focused on human interest stories. Uh, and that we have trouble remembering things that are not built around stories. Uh, and so what actually drives the economy, I th we think, are substantially stories. What drove the economy in the 1990s when we had a stock market boom, we had a booming economy? Why was it booming? Well, we believe it was the stories of the, uh, of the growing um, internet boom, the technology boom. It was stories about how we are smart investors and we just subscribed to Money Magazine and we were, our stock market portfolio was going up and we've discovered ourselves as investors and we're smarter now. It, it's all built around ideas related to the economy and related to people. And it became entwined with our whole view of the world and ourselves. When the stock market crashed after 2000, it dispelled that story somewhat. Uh, and a new story came up about real estate. It kind of took the place. Well, we just learned that we are smart investors. And now the stock market is disappointing. So we come up with another story. It's built in also with stories of what people are doing around the world. The idea that capitalism was triumphant in not only the U.S., but in Russia, in China, in India, and that there's all these new rich people coming on. And I'm one of them. I'm thinking, I, the representative person, I've learned to be an investor. Mm -hmm. And I've learned that we're running out of things like real estate, like land to build houses on. Mm -hmm. and there's some truth to this story but it became embellished in our imaginations and it drove this amazing boom in real estate prices, not just in Los Angeles, not just in the United States, but in many places around the world. And it pushed us into an unsustainable situation. I'm just giving you an example of stories. A couple of recent stories uh, turn out to be human interest stories uh, of a sort that are changing the coloration of our attitudes toward the economy. One of them is, um, did you see um, John Stewart uh, and um, okay, a show of hands? How many people know what I'm talking about? <laughs> okay, uh, I think this guy John Stewart. Uh, he was on was it five nights a week yep. for years. Suddenly, something really, really big happened to his career. It just took off because somehow this became the talk of the nation, and you kind of wonder um, what was what what happened? Why are we so? It has something to do with our mood and our thinking about ourselves and our relation. And some stories are just resonant at certain times. Um, now, uh, a number of uh, literary theorists have written uh, lists of the canonical stories. Uh, the, the, uh, I'm thinking of uh, Georges Polti, who in 1916 claimed that there were only 36 stories in all of literature. <laughs> Uh, and I think he was not exactly right. It's not quite that simple. Uh, there's another author, uh, Ronald Tob uh, Tobias, in 1993, said there's 20 stories. Uh, uh, but uh, it seems like, you know, I, I, I was looking down the list of um, uh, Georges Polti's uh, 1916 list of stories, and I could find the um, uh, John Stewart uh, uh, Jim Cramer's story as one on the list. It's called Falling Prey to Cruelty or Misfortune. 
And uh, one of the variants is called Innocent Despoiled by Those Who Would Protect. So I'm <laughs> quoting Pulte in 1916. It's just one of those stories. It can be very resonant. And uh, I don't think John Stewart knows why he had such a hit uh, right now, but it has something to do with our anger that's in us at this time. Uh, we were just at the LA Times today, George and I, and we talked with Tom Petruno, who uh, writes a column for the LA Times. He said, it's just amazing how much email he's getting about AIG. People are really, really angry about these, these guys uh, uh, who are getting their bonuses, even though the government is bailing them out. Uh, and he's shocked by it. He said he's never seen anything like it. What about Bernie Madoff? Have you heard of this story? <laughs> uh, that one fits in under the same innocent despoiled by those who would protect theme. So uh, we have a lot of stories that unfortunately are shaking our confidence right now. So I'm just talking about the... Um, uh, so... Um, the... Um, uh, th this is what we think drives the economy. Remember it was a while back when you were feeling... We, maybe you, I don't know if I'm reading you or not, right? But back in 2004, when somebody boasted to you that they just bought this house in somewhere in the, in the L.A. area and they doubled their money in just uh, a short time, and you were saying, maybe I'm a sucker not to be doing this, and you're wondering. Um, but these were driving an emotional environment that generated a boom for a while and which had the seeds of its own destruction in it. Meanwhile, what are economists saying? Okay, so I'm quoting Robert Barrow, who's a distinguished economist at Harvard University, uh, and he said he totally rejects the Obama stimulus bill. He says it's probably the worst bill that has been put forward since the 1930s. I don't know what to say. I mean, it's wasting a tremendous amount of money. And Bob Barrow is famous uh, for a theory called Ricardian equivalence, which says that government fiscal policy has no effect because rational consumers are calculating that even though I'm getting a stimulus today, uh, I'm going to get a tax bill later when the government has to repay the debt. And so I've calculated it all out and concluded that it has no effect and I shouldn't spend any more. Uh, I think Vero is a good example of he's missing the real driver. Of the, he, he's... The, the, this idea that people are just rationally maximizing uh, doesn't, doesn't uh, well, maybe it sounds right to a lot of people, and I think maybe we have an uphill battle, but the purpose of our book was to try to get people to rethink what's going on in the economy and try to understand what is driving it. Now, one of the conclusions uh, is that in dealing with a crisis like this one, we have to deal quickly and decisively with it before it gets out of hand, because stories are not forgotten. Uh, and uh, we have a story of injustice, which is coming up now, and this kind of story puts a psychological scar on all of us. And this kind of story uh, harms our confidence. As George was saying, in order mm -hmm. to have confidence, we have uh, confidence, as you said, is, mm -hmm. is complete trust. Now, in a in a good marriage, for example, you have confidence in each other. That means you're not spying on each other to see that, uh, the, that you're not doing something that I would uh, disapprove of. The, the, the marriage works well when you have confidence in each other. 
Okay, and one thing you learn in a good marriage is you never say something, raise your voice in anger and say something awful that would be remembered for years later. It should be, <laughs> it should be the same with the economy. We don't want to let things happen that are <coughs> awful that will be remembered later because it will destroy confidence, I, I don't know about for irrevocably, but it will never be the same again. And so the problem that we're seeing is that we haven't um, acted quickly and decisively enough for this crisis. I wanted to give one little story, uh, which George encourages me to repeat, <laughs> maybe a little frivolous, but about how long memories of crises uh, persist with us. And uh, this is the Miracle Whip story. <laughs> so, uh, do, you know, do you know what I'm referring to? Miracle Whip? It's a brand of mayonnaise. Uh, but you note that it doesn't say mayonnaise on the bottle. I'll, I will explain. <laughs> so, uh, Miracle Whip was introduced in the bottom of the Great Depression in 1933. And they introduced it at the Chicago World's Fair as a cheaper mayonnaise to be brought out at a time when people were not able to afford mayonnaise. <laughs> it may be hard to imagine, but you couldn't afford mayonnaise in 1933. Uh, and... Uh, it's um, uh, uh, so you you uh, the, the interesting thing is that we're still my family is still buying Miracle Whip seventy so, uh, seventy six years later and I don't even know why I'm buying it uh, but we're <laughs> we are still I think it's a family tradition that we were frugal and economical uh, there's another brand the other major brand is called Hellman's right. And did you ever wonder why they say real mayonnaise on their <laughs> label? <laughs> it's because they want you to know that it's not the cheap stuff that <laughs> was produced in the Great Depression. Uh, still, they're still putting that on their label. Uh, so that's a story from the Great De Depression. It just shows how the frugality that we learned in 1933 is still with us today. But there's a new story from 2009. I don't know if you saw it which I think will have maybe 70 years of reper repercussion. And that is that Starbucks coffee has announced that it's coming out with a brand of instant coffee. <laughs> okay, <laughs> This is exactly parallel to Miracle Whip. You thought that instant coffee was forever behind you, okay? <laughs> that you would never <laughs> drink that stuff again. But uh, you may be back into another decade of instant coffee drinking. And once you get back into the habit, you may stay with it, for, and it may become a family. Your grandchildren will be drinking uh, Starbucks instant coffee. Um, but they, these, that may be a little frivolous, but I think that the, the, the bottom line of our book is that we have to deal decisively with the event. It's not purely psychological. It's the interaction between psychological and actual real experiences. And what's happening right now, the real experience is that people are fearful for their jobs, they're getting laid off, young people are starting to think, I don't have a future, maybe I won't go to college, if I am in college, I'm not going to get a job. We're letting this stay and fester. Um, and moreover, we're getting people thrown out of their houses, uh, and we know they're innocent. You know, some people will say uh, they should be taught a lesson, I guess, some people that uh, we should... Uh, uh, hold them to their contracts. Uh, but I'm just worried about the psychological scars that we're in introducing at this point. So what is the bottom line? Uh, 
we think that the uh, Bernanke Fed and the Obama administration have gotten some very good starts on correcting the problem, uh, but they are not strong enough. And unfortunately, they've taken too long. And we're in serious trouble now with this economy because we've allowed the confidence to collapse uh, and we're slow to deal with it. So what George and I advocate uh, in our book is that there should be a strong fiscal target for full employment. Uh, the $787 billion that the Congress passed in the stimulus bill earlier this year is not enough, and moreover, it's taking too long. Secondly, we need a full credit target to get credit back to normal. Uh, now, the government already did some good things in this, uh, in, uh, in this vein. Notably, when Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac failed, uh, U.S. government put them under a conservatorship and instructed them to continue what they were doing, namely securitizing mortgages and buying mortgages to support the market. If they hadn't done this, this crisis would be even worse. So I think that we have to think about doing some rather forceful things to get credit flowing again. And what we have so far today is not big enough. Uh, in the longer run, I think that we have another five or ten years of work to do as a nation to re revamp our regulatory system, to revamp our consumer protections, to revamp our financial institutions, to move forward uh, and do things that will help rebuild confidence. Uh, but if we don't do these things, uh, I'm worried that we will have maybe not another depression, but we will have a period of unusually slow economic growth that will represent a, a failed opportunity for our nation, for our young people, for all of us. I will stop there, and uh, maybe I'll sit down again, and uh, we'll yep. have uh, questions. Yep. Thank you, Bob. That was good. Thank you, folks. Uh, we will now begin our Q&A portion of our uh, discussion tonight. And we want to remind you that this is being recorded for both video and audio podcasts. So we please ask you to ask all your questions just in the microphone. Uh, raise your hand and wait for a circle of staff to get to you. There's two of us going around. Uh, if you could please state your first and last name before your question. We'd like to give a sense of community. Um, lastly, our donation buckets will be going around, and we do appreciate any and all of your support. Thank you. Gentlemen, we have a question front and center. Uh, thank you so much. Um, my name is Norbert Chen, and my question is, one of the most frightening stories going around these days is Rubini's idea that there's $3.6 trillion of total write-downs that have to be made, and that we've only done half of that so mm -hmm. far. What credence do you give to this statement? Bob, you have to answer. Yeah, I don't know that I can come verify that number, but we are in a sort of important downward spiral. The real estate market has already lost something like 30% of its value, and the stock market 60% of its value since 2000. The real estate market has been trending down. I know I've produced numbers, the Standard & Poor Case-Shiller Index. If you look at what the Obama administration is forecasting, it's another 17% further down in 2009 and then another 4% down in 2010. So real estate prices are just going to keep going down. Lots of balance sheets are affected by these things. 
we have a problem that's unfolding through time. Uh, it, it comp banks or other institutions that look all right today may not be all right tomorrow. And so I think uh, Nouriel Roubini has been really on to this problem that you, you know, you've got to be solvent. <laughs> you have to have a positive net worth to, to function as an institution. And unfortunately, this is a continuing problem. And we may s need more bailouts and more, I, I hate to say it, but uh, we, we, we have a, a systemic risk which is, uh, which is becoming frightening uh, in this country today. We have a question up front here. Sir, if you can stand, please. My name is Jeevan Anand. Uh, Professor Ekerloff, you mentioned about the snake oil story. Yes. And my question is, are we addicted to the snake oil or irrational exuberance forever? That we had built up a house of cards that collapsed, yep. and now we are desperate to build it again yep. so that we can have the same scenario again and again and again. Yep. Well, I think that there's... There's always, in a capitalist economy, and probably in socialist economies too, I'm sure socialist economies, there's a tendency for people to want to, uh, for people to be willing to buy snake oil. So it seems to me that uh, it's the role of the government to have proper regulations, to have regulations which makes it much more difficult, which protects the consumer, which protects the... Uh, whoever would be buying these snake oil. So it seems to me this, that in the 1930s, um, relative to the banking institutions at the time, we developed a whole system of safeguards. But then after the, 1930, in the 1930s, actually we forgot about how, how good they were, and a whole system of non-bank banks uh, grew up, and a whole system of financial system grew up, which wasn't appropriately protected. So I think that the lesson from this is not that we are continually, um, uh, that we're continually going to have this problem, it's that what we ought to do is we should not forget the problems of the past, and we have to develop a system of regulations. So it was the idea, it was the basic idea from uh, of Reaganomics, the basic that the system would be self-policing, which, which was just wrong. And so in medicine what we have is we have the Food and Drug Administration, and um, we need the same thing in terms of financial markets. Gentlemen, we have a question to your far right. Uh, my name is Frank Casares. Um, at the end of the John Stuart Kramer interview, John Stuart made a remarkable comment or implication uh, basically that the average person should not invest in the stock market, and I guess by extension real estate, that there's, he implied that there's too many animal forces, too many economic forces to, for the average person to, um, to understand, and it's too much of a risk. I'd like your comment, please. Bob, you have a comment? Well, the stock market represents ownership of our corporations. And that's very important for our economy, and it, it has to be, uh, someone has to own it. It should be done in a diversified manner. Uh, financial theory is a powerful technology. Financial theory says diversify. What should you do now in this time of uncertainty? It seems to me that it's hard to point to what is safe, what's perfectly safe. So one should 
own a variety of assets, including the stock market. Uh, I think maybe uh, I, I saw the John Stewart <laughs> interview. Uh, I thought um, I'm not. We have to develop better consumer protections. We have to do things that that fix the faults that the rating agencies errors that rating agencies made. These are fixes that we can make. But I I don't see a future where we're not investing in the stock market because that is a major component of the national wealth, and and uh, it's that's that's economic life. We're not proposing anything so rapid. And this is one thing that maybe you stress. The Keynesian view of capitalism is that we, we need capitalism. It's a powerful technology for economic growth. But it has rough edges. And so we have to support it properly. And there is a role for the government. But the government is not going to be nationalizing everything. You are going to be owning. People like you are going to be owning your share of the stock market. And that is something I, I think we both firmly believe. We have a question up front here. Uh, Todd Kerner. Um, when you say snake oil salesman, I think of the real estate um, loan brokers out there and the banks who are making these loans. Can you comment on the fact that most of these loans were made by people who were disengaged from any accountability for whether those loans went bad, and thus they were rewarded for making the loans, but had no penalty if those loans indeed went defaulted? Yeah, I think that's exactly the point. I mean, that that's the same point with respect to William Rockefeller. He came in town with his buggy, but I'll bet you he didn't return to that same town for <laughs> some time. And that's something we can fix, by the way. Yeah. So it's, it's about aligning incentives. And we've made a lot of mistakes about aligning of incentives uh, that uh, by giving big bonuses to people even if they failed. But unfortunately, we didn't yeah. consider this possibility when, uh, when these companies arrange yeah. these bonuses. Now we have to think through better about how people are really motivated. Yeah. And it may involve, it will involve bonuses, but it will have to be done better. Yeah. And one of the reasons that we did ha make the wrong decisions here and gave the wrong incentives is that we had the wrong economic theory. We weren't taking into account the snake oil. We weren't taking into account the animal spirits. And, and so that, that, that's what this book is about. It's supposed to be economic theory that contains all that. Gentlemen, far back, middle section. Hi, my name is Stuart Cox. My, my question is about snake oil uh, in the credit default swaps market. Um, and not the peddlers who went out and, and sold the the mortgages, but then traded it and leveraged on it. So that if you look at the Office of the Controller of the Currency, he only lists the third quarter of 08. The notional value of the credit default swap shared by the five big banks is $176 trillion. And why, then you wonder, why don't they lend money when they get it from the government? And <clears throat> it would seem that that notional value has to be reduced to a denominated value, and then they have to figure out who really owes what. For instance, two days before Lehman Brothers went bankrupt, the International Swaps and Derivatives Association called together the adhering parties to their credit default swaps, and they made a deal on who's going to owe who what. So, so after they defaulted, the, the, note, the story was there might be $38 billion, $68 billion, $100 billion owed. Actually, they, it came down to about $6 billion, and they shared it. So, how can anyone have confidence? How can there be any real spirit of opportunism, not greed, in our economy 
as long as there's this huge debt obligation that hold, that's held over the whole economy. And why can't the government corral that debt and make them hammer it into what it really is and then figure out who has to pay what? Okay, a complicated question. Uh, but uh, I think uh, you mentioned ISDA, which is the International Swaps and Derivatives Association, which has been lobbying for regulations that serve, th well, their own members well, uh, but also presumably serve the company, country well. They have been concerned about systemic risks, but not concerned in the f exactly right way. The problem is that we have a huge amount of counterparty risk. We have swaps, uh, as you mentioned, a huge sum of, of uh, credit default swaps and other kinds of swaps that are affected by counterparty risk. And if we have a systemic crisis, and if we allow Lehman to fail, or uh, possibly other banks to fail, it becomes a house of cards. And, and ISDA didn't figure that out. We're starting to figure that out now. And I think this is a matter of financial engineering in the good sense. We are, for example, there are plans now to start a clearinghouse for swaps that will help prevent the, the house of cards uh, aspect of it. I think that we're very much more focused on counterparty risk. We were, part of our complacency is that we thought that Lehman Brothers or Bear Stearns could never fail. And now they, they've shown their weakness. So I think that we're going to move toward financial markets that are designed around that sort of weakness. And I think that it's a technical problem that, as I said, we're going to be spending years fixing. But we will move ahead with swaps because swaps are risk management institutions like insurance. They, they're an, an analog of insurance and they fulfill an important purpose. Now, you may also have a note that there was a little bit of snake oil <laughs> sold in this market too. Um, that's, that, again, is a, a problem that, that we can deal with with better transparency, better disclosure, uh, and better regulation. Gentlemen, we have a question all the way to your left, right over here. Getting back to a little economic theory. Oh, sorry, Jack Brooks. Getting back to economic theory, in your book, do you believe that the economy can continue to grow in perpetuity, or will we still suffer boom and bust cycles once we fix human psychology? <laughs> yeah, I, th I think I've got an answer to that. So I think in the 1930s, uh, we did fix the financial uh, institutions, and we, we, we had, uh, by, by things like the FDIC, the, the basically the banks were the, were the core financial institutions, and we had a series of safeguards. We also um, came up with a new theory for how to take care of economies that go into recessions, which you, when they go into recession, you can reduce interest rates, which will give incentives for people to make investment, or you can do a fiscal stimulus. And so basically, for, we had a very long, we've had a very long run for something like uh, 70 years without any really major recessions. And so, um, and the whole world actually has had marvelous growth. I mean, country after country, countries that, that in my youth were considered just really basket cases. Uh, they were starving in China, they were starving in India, and these countries are now developing fast. So I think actually uh, we get this problem solved and we should be back on track 
and uh, you know, just the ingenuity of, of, of millions of people thinking together and coming up with new ideas uh, you know, leads to cures to things that, uh, that are really marvelous. We're actually much better off now than we were, let's say, in 1940 or 1945. Um, that um, problems that people have that were really major, such as especially medical problems, are we're now we, we're now solving. So I think I think we can do I think we can do continue to grow, and I think we sh should do okay. We have a question, Senator Farbacks, gentlemen. Uh, I'm a very small investor. Bill Bicker, I'm sorry, uh, that pulled everything out and it's all cash. And it's going to stay that way until somebody is punished. Because I have no concept of any regulation you could develop or any system you could have if anybody can rip this off for millions of dollars or billions of dollars and walk away and we say, gee, we shouldn't let that happen again. Mm -hmm. When is somebody going to get it? How are we going to know these regulations work? Thank you. Uh, Bob, do you have an answer to that? Uh, well, yeah, I, uh, we do, as I was saying, people feel unfairly treated. That is the fundamental problem that we have to solve. And, uh, People who have lost their life savings, they were following the advice of uh, our president, our leaders. They know it wasn't their fault. It, it, it's a systemic collapse. And uh, they're particularly galled by, it's usually a, a rather small number of people who, who are getting huge bonuses right now. Uh, I think uh, we, we do live in a country with a rule of law and if someone got a contract, so th this incidentally, it, it's, I think the government has to be acting aggressively to restore our sense that we are a just society. The, the, the problem is that these people had contracts to receive this money and it's, you know, the, the, there's a, a problem in the government stepping in and abrogating a contract because we live in a rule of law. But you know the government did do that sort of thing. In, if I might go back to the Great Depression, in 1933, when Franklin Delano Roosevelt took office as president, there was a similar anger at the business sector that had. It was the same thing. People were wiped out. They were losing their homes, and he did an amazingly aggressive thing. Within, I think it was one day of taking office, he went off the gold standard. And he told people that it took it unfolded over some months afterwards. But he told people, "We're confiscating your gold that you're holding," because he thought people who were hoarding gold were were anti-socially benefiting from this crisis. He confiscated the gold. He canceled the gold clause in the national debt, which means he defaulted effectively on the national debt. People don't realize that the U.S. government has defaulted on its national debt by taking gold bonds and refusing to give the gold. They gave you less money back. He did this out of conviction because he thought that people wanted action and they wanted not to reward the wealthy. To this day, his actions were 
are controversial. There are still some people who call that the crime of 1933 because the government confiscated. I think that we should avoid at all costs confiscating. But one thing that could be done, for example, on the AIG, people who are getting bonuses, there could be, I think there will be, pursuit of them in the sense that maybe that bonus was paid based on some kind of fraud, that the company wasn't announcing its true condition. And so there may be some way of getting that back. But I, I really also think there's a risk to going in and because people are angry, taking, just taking, confiscating something. From that. Roosevelt did it. Uh, I'd like to avoid doing that. I think, w to, to continue, I, th I think one of the reasons that we had this was public, was not, was not just government tolerance of this, it was public tolerance. That I didn't see, you go back two years ago, and I, in an audience like this, I don't think your question would have been asked. Even though, two years ago, uh, you would have found people making the same uh, outrageous, uh, get, getting the same outrageous uh, bonuses and... Uh, and salaries and so forth. Jail time. I'm not talking recovery. Well, I feel you can't put any. Okay, so I have an answer to that. You can't put somebody into jail who didn't do something illegal. That's, uh, you know, that's so. Um, I feel that uh, the district attorneys um, are gearing up and they have a lot of business. And, uh, you know, we're economists, we're not in this business, but I feel that, that, uh, that they have a lot of work to do. Gentlemen, we have a question to your left, all the way to your left here. This will be the final question of the night. Unfortunately, we've run out of time, but we do invite you to join us at our reception taking place over in the garden area where our guests will be there, and you can further discuss tonight's topic. Thank you. Hello, my name is Alex Knott. I'm a student at the University of Southern California. Um, my question is about home value insurance and uh, its role in the future of this economy and how it may help to, uh, um, I guess, relieve some of the fear that is in the marketplace. And I also, in further down that uh, train of thought, how do we stimulate the home futures market so we can okay. actually create a product that uh, would be viable? Okay, this is directed at me. This is, yes. these are, thank you. <laughs> uh, home equity insurance is something I've advocated for years, which is insurance policy uh, for the value of your home, not just uh, uh, an uh, the possibility that it would burn down. It's much more likely that your home would lose market value than that it will be burned down. So just advancing our insurance markets means that we should start insuring that. <clears throat> I'm very inspired to see that President Obama announced a form of home equity insurance just a, a matter of weeks ago, uh, which would have the form of insuring uh, mortgage servicers who offer workouts to mortgage holders uh, to protect them against this problem. I was just describing that the Obama administration imagines that home prices may continue to fall for another year or two. So it would protect them, again, if they do the good deed of doing a workout. The other thing you mentioned is the futures market for single-family homes. I've worked on this with the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, and a little-known fact is that we have, for three years now, there is a market in Chicago for Los Angeles. You can buy and sell homes, Los Angeles homes, in Chicago, and it's it's uh, it's a liquid. Uh, it ought to be liquid. It's a market that uh, is a, a purely financial market. You, it would be based on an index. Uh, this is the kind of thing that is starting to grow worldwide. 
And if we did it better, it would enable us to prevent the kind of problems that we're having. In other words, it would allow people, the, the problems we're having is a failure to manage risks, notably real estate risk. We've had people in these, uh, estimated over 12 million Americans are underwater in their home equity because they've borrowed money, they've leveraged their position, and the home prices fell, and now they, they don't have anything. We have all these people who were wiped out because of the declining real estate market. That is a sign of failure of risk management. And we think that creating better financial infrastructure, we are economists here, you know. We're not rabble-rousers. We want to make the system work. And, <laughs> and we think that better financial, we're not, that's the thing that I feel very strongly about. It's not that we want to put people in jail. That won't solve the problem. We want to fix it so that it works better. Thank you so very much for coming out to Sokolov. Thank you very much. Thank you.